everybody. Welcome to the Blockchain Bee. I'm your host, Ronnie Rose, and today we are meeting with Maureen Murat, a corporate lawyer and chief advisor of Crowdy Advisors, a business consulting firm that advises small businesses and startups through their equity crowdfunding and or initial coin offerings, also known as ICOs. Maureen, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How about you? I'm doing all right. Uh, so before we jump into the meat of this, I want to know who you are, you know, outside of your work, just uh, where do you live? What should we know about you? Okay, cool. I live in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. I've been here for about 10 years now. I moved here from Miami, Florida, mm -hmm. where I was born and raised to Haitian parents. So that was an experience in and of itself. I'll say that. I have two siblings. Um, one still lives in South Florida and another lives in Dallas. I went to law school here in DC and that's how I kind of ended up staying here. Although my goal, I've told you already, is to move to New York at some point. Yes, yes. come to New York. <laughs> yes. And so um, I'm working on it. Um, New York doesn't love me as much as I love New York. <laughs> or I should say the prices don't love me as much as I love New York. Prices don't love anyone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's about it as far as personal background. Now you're, you're uh, a member of the bar in New York and in Florida, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So typical overachiever. Um, <laughs> tell us more about your upbringing. You mentioned that you were raised by Haitian parents. They immigrated to the United States. When was that? And like, what brought them over here? And how did that affect your childhood? So they came to the United States in the early 80s. Okay. And at that time, Haiti was going through quite a bit with their politics and, you know, and the president and things of that nature. And so they, um, moved to the U.S., like most immigrants moved to the U.S., for a better opportunity, a better life, and to be able to help their family members back home. That's the whole point of the United States, right. which I'd like us to get back to focusing on that. Right, tell right. Tell me more. So how how did that affect your upbringing? You know, we already said you got barred in two states, and I think you told me earlier that you did it, like, within the same year. Yes. Well, that's because I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a good kind of crazy. Right, right. Kind of crazy. Um, my um, upbringing was different um, in the sense that uh, you kind of grow up, I think, with you almost immediately grow up with a set of values that maybe the average person doesn't have. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, when immigrants come over, you, you know, there's this level, there's this um, perception that you're kind of trying to live under the radar. So you're not, you know, trying to get in any issues with the government and things like that. And around in the 80s and 90s, um, there were quite a few Haitians and other Caribbean folks coming um, to the U.S. and coming into Miami. So, and there was just a lot of, you know, stigma and a lot of yeah. racism, I will say, and things like that, that affect, you know, how you, how your life goes. So I'm a Haitian going mm -hmm. to school and, you know, because of the way I dressed or looked, et cetera, and because of what was on the news, someone always had something to say about Haitians. Uh, up until about high school, actually. And then I remember, I don't know if you remember the Fugees with Wyclef Jean. The what? I'm sorry? The Fugees, the group Fugees. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm, no okay. I'm 21. Maybe that's so. <laughs> too old for you. Or too, way back. Um, and so they came out and Wyclef Jean made it cool to be Haitian, which oh, that's was awesome. great, I think. Um, and so that kind of died down. Yeah, that like brings you, that brings you like sort of uh, into pop culture and 
how old were you around then? So were that, you like in your teens? Or? Yeah, teens. So 14, 15, okay. something like that. Yeah. Okay. So a little more like acceptance at school and um, I guess celebration more, right? Right. And and I will say that even just um, the things that people grew up watching and um, and eating and things like that, we didn't really have that much of that because that's just, you know, just not how things worked in my house. Um, but I wouldn't trade that experience. Was your home very like, you know, inside your home, you're basically living in a in Haitian culture and then once you step out, it's like a different realm. I know that's sort of how it was for me growing up, like inside the house. Israel only spoke Hebrew with my mom outside the house right. in America and you're like switching on and off. Is that how it was for you? Do you speak uh, Haitian? Creole, yes. It's called. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so that's how it was. Um, so my early formative years, right. I didn't speak very much English at yeah. home. Um, kind of learned it in school. And, and, and just like you said, you're, you're almost switching it on and off. Um, and I remember there were times I would go to school and say things, you know, with an accent that my mom would use, and it was so <laughs> wrong, but I thought that was the word. You That's know, so, so funny. The same thing would happen <laughs> I can to laugh me. at it now, right? <laughs> no, the same thing would happen to me. I remember my mom uh, used to say statue instead of statue. Because she's, you know, my mom's an English teacher. My mom was an English teacher in Israel, so, like, she knows English. Um, but it's just, it's funny. That's what you're raised with. And then she also, like, says things in, she even says things in Hebrew that are just, like, a, she changed the world, the word into something else. So when I went to Israel for college and like, I would use a word that was not right. <laughs> I, I felt like an idiot. People would be like, what are you saying? Oh gosh. Those are the words you grow up with. Oh gosh. Right. So how did all of your experiences growing up, how did that lead you to law? Did you always want to work in law or how did you end up there? No, I thought um, when I went off to went to college that I was going to be in medicine. So um, initially I thought I'd be um, a pediatrician actually. And then um, I actually witnessed my Mm -hmm. niece, my first niece being born. And I was like, oh, I think, and my sister's um, nurses, her OBGYN nurses, which is so great. And the experience was just so cool. And I thought, oh, that's what I want to do. And so I I started working towards that. um, Right. Because most of those classes are still the same, the science classes and everything. Um, And then I started working at a law firm part-time doing um, mailings for this bankruptcy law firm in South Florida. And one of the um, employees got fired. And so the attorney started giving me more work to do. Bad for them. Good for you. Yeah. Right. And then um, I thought, oh, I, then I guess I kind of changed. Because you're like, I'm in my early 20s at this point. I'm like, oh, I could do everything. Um, so <laughs> once I started doing that, I was like, oh, man, I really like this kind of work. Um, and then, you know, I started drafting motions and things like that. So, So then I thought, okay, I'll go to law school. I feel like this is this was really pulling me. And so um, at the time I hadn't finished my bachelor's yet. So after I finished that bachelor's, I also did a master's actually while I was on waiting lists for law school Mm -hmm. and then went off to law school. My parents would be so jealous of yours right now. Like, oh, they were going to have a doctor, but then she decided to become a lawyer instead. Pity. (laughs) That's that's perfect. (laughs) So, okay. So you started working in like bankrupts at a bankruptcy law firm. uh, And then... Tell me how that led, how you got from there to building your own uh, firm of advisors and advising small businesses and startups through equity crowdfunding. So, I don't know, it's like a 10-year story. I'll try to cram it into like a couple of minutes. Um, 
So uh, I started law school in 2012. Um, so I finally got my stuff together, got in. Um, I decided to go to an evening program. So I worked during the day as a paralegal and went to school at night. Okay. And um, while I was in school, the first couple of years, um, I knew that I wanted to take the bar in New York and Florida. And I knew that I wanted to litigate. I thought that that was where my calling was. Um, and then I took a couple um, courses at law school in law school that were required like evidence and civil procedure. Oh. And uh, one of my professors had asked me, what did I like to do? And I, um, or what were the best classes? Where, where were the classes I got the best grades in? So I was telling him most of the, the classes I got the best grades in were the procedural courses. Um, and which was like evidence and things like that. And I loved those courses. Okay. And he thought, he suggested that I take a tax class because he said that there weren't that many people doing tax um, and that maybe that would be something I would like. Wow. And I thought, okay, I'll try it. Um, I didn't have any, and I'm not afraid of numbers. I used to do <laughs> bankruptcy payment plans. So, and we used to do that by hand before all this um, all so these, funny. yeah, because at the time Excel actually really sucked. Mm -hmm. Um, it's nothing like that now, but Excel was not what it was <laughs> back then. Um, so you couldn't trust Excel <laughs> back then. But anyway, so I, um, um, I took my first tax class and I really enjoyed it. And then I took another one. Those are the only two that my law school was offering. And then I thought, oh man, I really like this course. I went to speak to the judges who taught the courses and, right. um, and so then I thought, okay, well, I'll be a tax attorney. I can still litigate cause I can go to the U S tax court right. and help people who are having issues. Um, right. and then, and I would still be doing something that I liked, right. It would still be legal and law related, okay. but I also knew that because of competition and things like that, I'd have to probably get in, uh, an LLM, which is a master's of law in that specific type of area. Um, and so my goal was to take the two bars and then go to LLM school. But as you can imagine, after I took those two bars, I was like, I am exhausted. You guys can't see my face right now, but like I, my jaw is dropping. I can't imagine like, like you're exhausted by then after the two bars, I'm exhausted just hearing the whole, the whole journey. Like I, I'm amazed. I'm amazed by you. Um, you, you changed from medicine to law and then you're just like going deeper and deeper into tax law you can figure out the numbers where it's so confusing for everyone so people who can wrap their brains around that it's amazing um so okay so you got barred in both states and then how did you move from tax law into helping these small companies raise loads of money um so um that's a good question. I'm not sure how I got out of tax law, and tax law still has a place in my heart. So maybe one day I will, I will, <laughs> I will go back to that. Um, but it all really started when I was going to join this um, startup that was working towards um, helping businesses, okay. helping business schools uh, create crowdfunding campaigns right. for their business students to help them get on their way because most business students you know, go to business school so that they can start their own business. And so I kind of liked that idea. And at the time, the job title three of the jobs act, mm -hmm. um, which is jumpstart our businesses and startups act, <laughs> um, that came out and this was in the Obama administration title three of that, um, actually was enacted in 
May of 2016, which allowed retail investors, so pretty much everyday people, Mm -hmm. to invest in small businesses the way that people who are wealthier have been able to do for the longest. Um, And so I like the idea that this was kind of like a community building effort. Mm -hmm. And um, the fact that there are so many small businesses who just need a boost and they have followers and they have um, customers that would help get them there. Right. Um, And so... I actually, I want to... I want to reemphasize that just for anybody who uh, didn't catch it. Typically, guys, like only, you know, venture uh, venture capital funds or investors who are accredited investors, meaning they have a high income or they have a high net worth, typically only they can invest in startups because it's such a risky investment. Um, so the U.S. Jobs Act, like, set these different regulations and rules for individual investors like me and you. Uh, to be able to invest in these small startups, um, but there's like a limit on how much they can raise. Uh, let's go back to what you were talking about there, though. Yes. Yeah, so um, I was going to work with this startup and that didn't work out, but then I thought, oh, I could do this work mm-hmm. without the startups, right? Because I would have been working right. on the reg side where uh, with the regulations, like the documents that you would have to submit to the Securities okay. and Exchange Commission, um, the paperwork that you'd have to combine to kind of get those things going. And it kind of fed to my strengths, right? And this is very procedural. There are some rules around it. There's some gray areas. It's kind of like a puzzle. So that, you know, is is interesting to me. And so kind of, it never occurred to me that securities law and and corporate issues would be something that I would be interested to. Um, And after, you know, working with those, with that group, I realized that is something that I like as well. And then I could also tack on some of my um, tax interests as well. So then um, I started trying to look for clients, right? Because then you start a business and you need right. to make money, right? So this business can survive. Um, and so I was going to all these tech meetups and trying to, you know, beat the street, trying to look mm-hmm. for clients and I realized that I needed to pivot a little bit because there were lots of people that I I was meeting who hadn't even done the basic stuff yet. They had not registered their business. They didn't have a business license. They didn't have a tax ID number, things like that. Um, And so I thought, oh, well, I could, that's a service I could offer um, because I've done that before when I was working at another law firm back in Florida. So I was like, oh, this is all kind of coming together. You know, like these are things that I can do already that I've always been doing. Um, And obviously it helped that that was a paralegal for such a long time. Right. So I started doing that in addition to helping them raise money via equity crowdfunding and other um, ways, you know, trying to get them to become bona fide businesses first, which is pretty much what you need, right, right. to be able to market whatever it is you're you're offering to people who would invest in you. Of course. And then it went on from there. Um, as far as uh, I guess fundraising in terms of ICOs and cryptocurrencies, that came out of nowhere for real because I that was not on my radar at all, and there were just people who realized. That, you know, with the SEC and the documents you had to submit, it was just too much paperwork, right? So they're like, well, I'm just going to do an ICO because I don't have to go through all that. And I'm like, what's an ICO? (laughs) And then, and then you learned it and swooped in to save them all. Oh my God. I'm the dark hole. (laughs) Guys, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more from Maureen. 
Hey everybody, Ronnie Rose here. I hope you've been enjoying the Blockchain Bee. You can find my email in the description below. Go ahead and shoot me a message and let me know what you think, what you like, what you don't like, and we'll make this the best podcast for you. Now, a little shameless self-promotion. Uh, some of you may know that I am a real estate agent with Douglas Elliman in New York City. So if your company is in New York or if you're considering moving to the city and you need to find new office space, let me know. We can definitely help you out. Or if you're looking to buy, rent, or sell an apartment, I'd love to work with you on that as well. All right, we're back with Maureen Murat. Uh, Maureen, so before we get into your work with ICOs, let's just explain to everybody what an ICO is. Sure. So an ICO is an initial coin offering, and essentially it is an, at least that's what it was back in the, back before these days, um, an unregulated way by which startups um, raise funds to either start, right. develop, or complete a cryptocurrency or blockchain-based project. Um, there, there are definitely some nuances. There are companies who are trying to do ICOs and they have no blockchain-based project. Yeah, Kodak. Um, or they are not necessarily startups anymore entering this um, arena, such as Kodak and um, Overstock. So there are some nuances to it, but generally speaking, it's a startup fundraising tool. Overstock is doing an ICO? Well, no, but they are not a startup. Yeah. Okay. You know, creating this blockchain based project okay. generally with startups, but now big companies are getting in. Uh, okay. Okay. So, so go on. So what is it that you do to help these ICOs and how did you, how did you discover your first ICO? Um, so the, I think going to these meetups and, mm -hmm. um, you know, networking and all that is really what helped me out. Okay. Um, and I was mainly going because I wanted to learn more about it and, and understand what, what the appeal was for all this. Mm -hmm. Cause you know, I, I like to think of myself as a very practical person. Yeah. So I, you know, like fads and things like that don't necessarily appeal to me. And I'm just like, what's so great about all of this? Um, but anyway, so in, in going out and um, reading up on things and going to these events, I, I, you know, it became clear to me. So um, as far as how those, these, how I got into, um, I guess, working with ICOs, uh, it's just that one person said that they needed help with an ICO. They didn't want to go the crowdfunding route, which to me, in, uh, in, in my opinion, ICOs are like crowdfunding yeah. 3.0, right? That's what we call it. Um, so I call it, um, or I would say crowdfunding on steroids, which is my <laughs> other term that I've coined. Oh, yeah. um, because again, you're just getting a whole bunch of people, right, mm -hmm. to come together and raise funds for a business. And so that's how I kind of got started in it. People just were coming up to me, asking me about it. And, you know, people almost think that if you're, you're an attorney, you know, everything about everything. So, but this kind of intrigued yeah. me. So I had to, I felt like I had to, I had to do my research. I mean, you were in the equity crowdfunding realm. So like, yeah. this was not so far of a reach, right. but it's cool. It's cool that people started asking you and then that drove you really to dive deep into it. And then also when you have, when you're in the position where you need to advise people or teach people about things, that makes you so much more into it and understand it so much clearer when you start to explain it to others. Yeah. And it's very helpful because, um, I've, I honestly, um, I think the people that I've worked with and people I'm connected with online, mm -hmm. they like keep me up to date. I rarely That's have right. to go looking for news, right? There's so much stuff out there and it changes so quickly. So I, I am very grateful for people online. Yeah. There are some good influencers out there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Okay, so which ICOs, uh, you know, what sort of ICOs have you worked with and what's really your criteria to decide if you're going to advise an ICO? So some of the ones I've worked with have had to do with sustainable energy. Mm-hmm. Um, one was like, one is an e-commerce marketplace um, and they're going to have their transactions done on a, a blockchain. Okay. Most blockchains nowadays are, are using it on the Ethereum. Most blockchain projects are um, using Ethereum. Um, right. As you know, I think it's, I think the number is like 85%. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. It's a really high number. It's, it's incredibly high. Um, but anyway, so, and they're using, you know, smart contracts technology and all that. Um, and one of the things I look for from the very beginning is the ability for the team to actually be able to tell me what it is they're trying to do. Right. Um, I remember in the beginning, I used to read the white papers before I would talk to them. Okay. And then I would find out that they had no idea what was in the white paper because oftentimes people paid other companies or other writers to write the white paper for them. And so they were just marketing it with no idea what the thing said. So I decided that I would not waste my time reading a 30 or 20 page white paper anymore. Um, you know, let's have a talk first. And if we go any further, then, then I'll look at the white paper, you know? Um, I mean, yeah, I would, I would hope that you'd also (laughs) tell them like, you need to get your shit together. Know what's in your white paper. Well, yes. Well, yeah. So, so, I mean, needless to say, I, those were not, I don't have, none of those people are my clients. None of those companies yeah. are my clients. They didn't work out. Right. <laughs> so how else do you vet them? Like what, you know, I've seen I, ICOs that are raising $50 million, $20 million, $300 million. And it's exhausting to me because most of the time I'm just like, you don't need this much money. When you just formed your company like three months ago, get like a very small sum, make your mistakes and then improve and you can raise more money I think so what do you think about that do you vet your ICOs based on how much they're raising I totally agree with that um most of the time the white papers also have some sort of a chart how they'll distribute funds etc yeah and I'm with you oftentimes you you don't need 50 million dollars you probably might need like 50k or 100k (laughs) which is why i think equity crowdfunding will make a comeback at some point so just plugging it there but um but i think that um you're right i don't i'm I'm, i've never been able to wrap my mind around why people need feel the need to raise so much money Mm -hmm. um for something that doesn't exist right i also feel like um a lot of it has to do with the hype around it because for quite some time, right, there was there were all these projects raising all this money um, and barely delivering anything. Right. So so I think people felt like, oh, well, my idea actually is a good idea. So I should be able to raise this money. I should be able to raise 50 million dollars. Right. Why not? Who are you to tell me I can't? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And but also, I know that like with equity, equity crowdfunding, like one of the reasons people like ICOs is because there's a lot of paperwork involved with equity crowdfunding and like, isn't the limit like a million dollars? Yes. So people are just like, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth all this hassle just to get other people to fund us? Isn't it better to just go to an angel investor? Well, I mean, that is one option, right? But the whole point of the, um, the equity crowdfunding, um, campaign 
uh, or fundraising tool is to be able to allow your community to also help invest in your company. And granted, you get um, you do give up a little bit of equity for the amount that you raise, but it's very little compared to what you would give to a venture capitalist or an angel investor, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that you know, the community that's built around whatever you're building is what you're really, what you're really trying to build. So a lot of, in DC, at least a lot of the breweries around here. So breweries and distilleries, they do the best in crowd equity crowdfunding platforms because of the community around, you know, people who like their product. So if you have someone who, if you have a big group of people who like your product and uh, and you're in the product or service business, I mean, I don't see anything wrong with raising money via equity crowdfunding. And the SEC doesn't ban you from raising money in other ways, right? right. So you can raise money from during, via equity crowdfunding. And then if you felt like you needed more funds and you wanted to raise that money from mm-hmm. accredited investors, you know, people who are wealthy, et cetera, then you could also um, do it that way as well. There's no... There's no um, prohibition. Right. Yeah. Next, we'll see uh, breweries on the blockchain coming to you, wanting to have an ICO to open their brewery. <laughs> oh, <we're... laughs> yes. So I wanna I wanna delve deeper into you know what challenges you have faced working with ICOs. Um. So I think one of the biggest ones is that um, people put a lot of energy into launching an ICO, trying to raise money to do, um, to create their project or develop it. And, um, and then once they raise the money and they find that they've been successful in that, things just kind of die. So there's this other, you know, there's some statistics out there about how many, um, dead coins or S coins, I will say, are out there because they raise all this money and they're nowhere to be found. There's no project. There's no movement. There's no progress. Right. So I think that uh, the ICO was the, was the business. Right. That's what, that's what you've said before. Like it's, it's so true. So, and and I just posted about this last week that the launching an ICO is Mm -hmm. not a business. Like that is not not. um, the end of it all. Right. After you raises these funds, you actually have to go do something. You actually have to go, you know, run your business. This is Wild, the whole point. Isn't it? Right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, so that's one thing. Um and and then also we we've also heard about projects online that have, you know, raised raised a, a significant amount of money and they have, you know, no intention of creating whatever it is right. that they you know, whatever the idea is that they sold to the people who contributed. Um, so we got to have, Hey, they have a white paper, right? That's one step, right? Um, and I mean, for things like this, when there's no, um, there's no structure, I think you can expect there to be scams, right? Right. So, so we do have to be careful about that. Um, another issue I also noticed is the over promising. Um, everyone likes to, I should say everyone, but a lot of projects like to say, you know, this is, the most innovative, first in this, first of its kind, ah, first right. in the world, etc. Revolutionary. We're changing Revolutionary the world. Revolutionary project. <laughs> uh, nobody's ever done this before, etc. And even if that's the case, I think um, there's this thin line bef- between puffery and, you know, misrepresentation. Right. And I think people most of the time bump against that line and cross over. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, and there are rules around what you promise people. 
um, and when you have to deliver it and how you have to tell them about it. So, you know, I think people thinking that their marketing, um, whatever their, their product is, is that's part of their marketing, but you have to be very careful about how you talk about how you talk about things because words matter very, very much when you, people's money Definitely. are involved. Definitely agree. Um, so I want to, I want to move away a little bit from ICOs and I want to stick on the, on the topic of ethics. I was having a conversation with my mom recently. She mentioned that she had gone out to dinner with some friends and they started talking about Bitcoin and, uh, she was like, Oh my, my daughter's in that. She has a podcast. And they were like with Bitcoin that's used by criminals. They buy drugs and weapons and all these other illicit items, whatever. And I, and when she called me, she was just like, Ronnie, I, I think you need to, I think you need to leave this. It's so dangerous. It's used by criminals. <laughs> so I would love, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I, well, so we, we've noticed that they, they, it has been used by criminals, right? right. Even most recently, um, when they, you've heard about the 12 indictments for the, um, the Russian folks who... The Russian operatives? Yes. They, they use, use Bitcoin? They use Bitcoin for some of their transactions to pay for stuff. So I'm not going to say Oh my God, tell me that, happened. tell me that Mueller, tell me that Mueller found them through their, <laughs> through their Bitcoin <gasps> transactions. Please. I don't know how they found them, um, but you know, they are very... Honestly, using Bitcoin, using Bitcoin is stupid. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not the smartest way. And, but I mean, even to say that, the other thing is that at the end of the day, anti-money, anti I mean, money laundering and things like that are not new, right? Right. It's been happening forever. And to date, the number one currency for um, money laundering is still the U.S. dollar. Right. So that has not changed. That has not changed. Um, it's not cryptocurrencies. And so I think that, like I was saying earlier, anything new and innovative, I think we can expect there to be some shadiness around it. Mm -hmm. But I... I but I don't think that we should only focus on that. And unfortunately, you know, we when bad things happen, it kind of clouds the good. Um, and so even though there are these few cases of, um, you know, money laundering and people using these cryptocurrencies for um, illicit activities or illegal activities, um, that doesn't take away from the fact that most of the activities that are being paid for for well so these types of activities are being paid for with cash right and i also i you know there was a story a while ago i heard this on unchained and i'd love to see this i'd love to see this be turned into a movie um there was this uh this federal prosecutor who's now actually at andreessen horowitz leading their crypto fund katherine hahn she uh i think there were like some fbi agents that stole bitcoin from criminals telling them that they're seizing it but then they were actually taking it for themselves. Right. Uh, so then Catherine Hahn and her team were able to like use the blockchain to like track them down and, you know, point them out and uh, prosecute them. So oh, gosh. again, using Bitcoin is kind of stupid in illegal transactions, but it was used originally. Uh, that was, you know, mainly how people used it in the beginning on this place called the Silk Road, which was on the dark web. And that's how they would buy weapons and drugs and other uh, illegal items. But... Now, now I do have one ethical issue with privacy coins. Right. So I know that cash, cash is king, right? You know, if you transfer a bag of cash to somebody, it's not as easy to, uh, to track that. But mm, okay. coins like Monero, where, you know, it uses a tumbler and it 
basically it's it's a privacy coin, so you can't directly right. see that this address sent money to this address. My issue with that is if criminals are using that, or if they're holding Monero as well, or whatever other privacy coin, and I buy that. Right. The whole idea of cryptocurrency, or one of the ideas of cryptocurrency is, you know, it's not really an idea, it's just how it is. It's it's super volatile. As I buy more, they're just getting richer off of it. Just because I'm using the US dollar, that's not making criminals any richer. But as I buy into Monero, which I haven't, <laughs> it's going to make them more wealthy. Do you see any issues with that? Or what, what do you think on that? Well, I think there's been this change, uh, or I shouldn't say change. So initially, when the, when Bitcoin was created, right, it was created to be a financial instrument right. that disintermediated like financial institutions. That was the whole point, right? You're supposed to use it to transact. You're supposed to use it to buy food, buy this, buy that. And then over time, we found this, you know, the community or uh, the the way that things have been going in terms of how we how we value these coins has turned into this, oh, I'm going to buy these privacy coins and then I'm just going to hold on to them right. and wait till they increase in value. Like they're technically supposed to be used as a means of transacting. So I think because of that, it, you know, it kind of takes away from the whole point of having these cryptos to begin with, because it's like, if you're going to tell me that we need to have this decentralized system and then, and then, but at the same time, I have to, when I, when I purchase these coins, I have to hold on to them somewhere on some exchange, right? That's not very decentralized at all. Um, (laughs) To be able to use them. I mean, I think you're defeating the point. Um, but on the other side of that, I well, mean, I mean, you can hold your coins on, on a wallet and well, that yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, but, it's, it's easier to hold it on an exchange sometimes. Right. And, and so, and that's another, like, that's another, I think an education issue too, like mm-hmm. people needing to know that where they can hold their coins, yeah. et cetera. But anyway, so, um, but to have these privacy coins is not the worst thing in the world, right? Because we already know that there are all these, um, um, data collecting firms who collect so much information about us oh, and right. um, sell it to other people so that they can, you know, advertise to us and, you know, follow us because we have, we're on Wi-Fi, et cetera. So mm-hmm. I think if the privacy coins were actually used for what they were meant to do, right. To transact and to have your, your transactions anonymous right. so that no one could, you know, track your purchases or see your salary or maybe even see your net worth and and try to prey upon you and scam you and things like that. I think if we used it for what, um, you know, these cryptos were intended to be used for, then that would be great. But to your point right now, that's not how we're using it. Right. Privacy isn't a bad thing. No. We right. all are entitled to our privacy. Yeah. My only issue is, you know, when I buy more of these privacy coins, they're getting richer because... Right. So that's what I'm saying. So like right now, they're not, it's not in the way that they should be used, right? So you're buying them. Yeah. They're, you know, the prices are going up and down. They're, you know, these mm-hmm. schemes to try to pump them and dump them, et cetera. So... So actually, we need more people to buy them so that... Right. Then we'll start exchanging them and the price will stabilize. Well, yes. Either more people buy them and more businesses and things like that accepting them. Right. Because I'm like, like, what's the point? of having your cryptocurrency if I can't use it anymore. Exactly. Nope. I agree. I 200 million thousand percent agree. People that are only in this for the investment, I'm not right. I'm not down for that. And, and there's nothing wrong with using it as an investment tool too, right. but then call it what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. If that's what it is, then that's what it is. Right. 
but we do need but we do need more platforms especially going back to the ICOs a lot of them while externally they say like we don't comment on price we don't want this that 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 like I've worked on an ICO on the inside they say like yeah we hope it'll go up like we want our investors to be happy but then on the outside they call them contributors who are just helping to build the project um, which of course like even investors on a global scale but they want the price of their token to grow and get people excited which means like a 30% growth in a month or so. Um, but right. they also, do they realize that with that volatility, it can throw off the success of their project because the success of their project could rely on the transaction of these tokens. Right. You know, they, they want some stability so that people don't just hold on to them. And the other thing is most of the ICOs are raising money um, by actually collecting Bitcoin and Ethereum and Litecoin, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. They're not actually collecting it in cash. Exactly. So then they have to also take into account that after they've collected these the, the Bitcoins and et cetera, then you need to convert them into cash to actually operate as a business. So it's like there's another layer to this. They're not cashing out immediately. A lot of them are holding on to it to let it grow so they can end up with more cash. Exactly. So it's like you're uh, you're holding you're holding on to them too. So you won't even you won't even use your own cryptocurrencies. Why would I use yours? Mhm. Mm so anyway, I'm trying not to be Nope, nope, no, no. Nope. I agree. I'm getting fired up. But I like I like that you would be the kind of lawyer that is super straightforward with your clients, the kind of advisor that does that because they need somebody to give them the real talk and make them raise money in a sensible way and guide them through that because you're on their side. You're not anti-ICOs. You're pro uh, using crowdfunding, whether it's an ICO or equity crowdfunding, whichever, in a responsible way that helps you build a community, spread word about your product and get it off the, get it off the ground. So I, I really admire that. Yeah, and, and I also want you to, the other thing is that I've noticed is that people, um, sometimes they raise the funds and then they go on about their business. And I'm like, but I, you should be running a business. So you might need help with other things like contracts or, right. you know, tax issues or intellectual property. Like, so there's so much more to it than just, yep. you know, the initial getting it off the ground. Absolutely. Um, and so I try to also, you know, mention those things. Yeah. You're there guiding them through all of this, all of this craziness. Yeah. Anyway, Maureen, I'm so glad that you joined us. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share with the Blockchain B community? No, but you can um, follow me on Twitter or Instagram yes. <laughs> at Crowdy Advisors. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, and on, on both platforms, Crowdy Advisors? Yes, at Crowdy Advisors at um, Instagram and Twitter. I also have a Facebook page, Crowdy Advisors, and um, my LinkedIn is just my name, Maureen Murat, uh, Maureen L. Murat, because L for my middle initial. And um, I think that's about it. Um, okay. I am, I guess I didn't mention um, where I uh, practice. I am in D.C. Um, and I travel to New York about once a month. I am of counsel to Cogent Law Group, which is a law firm here in D.C. Mm -hmm. um, most of our clients are small or mid-sized businesses, and our goal is to try to help them meet their business objectives. So that could be from, like I was saying, actually business formation, maybe actually creating this great project that you need help protecting um, to a, a blockchain-based project, et cetera. Um, so those are 
And so you could reach me at any one of those platforms if you have any more questions. Yes, and we will definitely link to those in the description. Um, again, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, like her page, follow her on Instagram and Twitter, add her on LinkedIn, and work with her because she's amazing. And you also have the most amazing energy. So guys, invite her to speak because she's killer. Thank you so much, Maureen, for joining. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.